welcome to the Vineyard Boise Sunday Message Podcast. You can join us live on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. on Facebook, YouTube, and vineyardboise.org slash live. Subscribe to our message podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And if you'd like to support Vineyard Boise, you can give online at vineyardboise.org slash give. Today's message is brought to you by Pastor Trevor Estes. Enjoy. Today we're, we're launching into a five-part series on hope that really we're moving towards Easter and Easter is the ultimate message and anchor of hope in the life of a Christian, in the life of the church, or in the life of all creation. And so that's what we're moving towards right now. Five weeks from now is Resurrection Sunday and we're going to be talking about hope that day, of course. But we're moving towards that now and we're going to be looking at different aspects of hope. Today we're, we're talking about finding hope in a world of angst and despair. Doesn't that sound like a fun message? <laughs> Finding hope in a world of angst and despair. And we're talking about world, that's a, that's a broad lens, right? We're talking about large-scale, uh, global, holistic things that are creating crisis that trigger in, uh, in people uh, feelings of angst, feelings of despair, uh, situations that we just shake our heads out and go, you know, I, I don't know what to do, Right? I want you to think about that for a moment. If you're, uh, let's, let's just talk about that. What are the, the, the things going on in our world today that you would say trigger they, their, their world, uh, living in a world of angst and despair? What are some of those things? If you're on campus here, you can just call it out. If you're online, you can type it in the whatever chat window your platform has. What are some of those things? Social media. Social media. Yes. That is, in fact, a source of angst and, and and despair. I actually got off of some of social media this year because of the despair it fostered in me. What else? War. Specifically, what war right now? Yeah, there's, there's a war in Ukraine that we look at it and it just seems overwhelming, right? The news. The news can be a source of angst and despair. The economy. Yeah, the economy is huge right now, Right? And it has ripple effects because there's, there's, you know, there's a, uh, a gas crisis, there's the, the inflation, and that creates housing insecurity, which creates food insecurity. Yesterday we had, I believe, was it 85 families, 85 households come to our food pantry for food, which is, uh, that's a, it's wonderful. And we were able to give them abundant amounts of groceries, like, like a divinely, surprisingly generous amount of groceries to every one of those households. We also were able to meet spiritual needs. We, we heard that some, uh, we had a couple salvations yesterday where people came for physical nourishment and they received spiritual nourishment as well. So that's wonderful that that happens. And yet the fact that there's that many people, that many households in crisis is, well, that's a world of angst and despair, isn't it? What else? Kids. When, when stuff is going on in the lives of your family that you can't control, right? How many parents would love to be able to control what's going on in the lives of your children and dictate their course, choose it for them? And when it's not working out, it's hard. What else? What was that? Health. Health crises, yes. There... What's that? Housing. Housing, yes. 
affordable housing. We could go on, right? And, and my point isn't to like belabor this, but realize that we live in a world of angst and despair. And here's the thing. We talk about a world of angst and despair, and that's a, a broad lens. And yet, for every one of those like broad angle lens crises, there's faces to the crisis. There's individual stories. It's the way that that unique cocktail of crises have played out in someone's life that is their story. And so we talk about living in a world of, of angst and despair. We have to deal with the, the fact that there's a global aspect to that and there's a very individual aspect to that. Today we're going to try and deal with both. Um, we're going to be in a, uh, a passage in John chapter 4, if you want to turn there. John chapter 4, you can turn there in your Bible or in your app, whatever you're using this morning. We're going to be looking at the life of one woman who, in fact, her world and the circumstances of her world placed her in a a place of, in fact, angst and despair. And we see that she has an encounter with Jesus, and we see how Jesus moved towards her in the midst of that. So we're going to pick up in John chapter 4, verse 1. It says, now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and he departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. Emphasize that word, he had to pass through Samaria. For our purposes today, the, the, the thing I want to zero in on this paragraph is just the fact that Jesus and the disciples are on the move. They're moving from southern Israel to northern Israel, from Judea, the the region of Judea, to the region of Galilee. And they have to go through the region of Samaria, which is not just a geographical place. It's also a, a biographical place. It's a people. It's the Samaritan people. And John says that he had to go that way. I want to take issue with that for just a moment. Let's look at a map here. There's a map of, of uh, Israel in Jesus' time. You see, in fact, that Judea was in the south, Galilee's in the north, and Samaria's in the middle. And so seemingly you would have to go through there. Although, here's what we know from uh, biblical sources, from external sources, is that uh, if Jesus pulled out his map and said, hey, Siri, got out his map app and said, how do I get from Jerusalem to Capernaum? that Siri would, in fact, give him two routes. You know, when you do the mapping and it gives you a couple routes and it says, well, this one's the fastest route, but this one's the shortest route. And sometimes it gives you those options. So there, there was, in fact, let's put the map back up. There was a route that was both shortest and fastest, and that would be to go through Samaria up to Galilee or vice versa if you were going south to north. But there was actually a preferred route that was both longer in distance and longer in time considerably longer. And to do that one, a person would, would, instead of going through Samaria, would leave Judea, would cut across to the east, go across the Jordan River, travel up the east side of the Jordan River, almost to the top, and then cut back across west, thereby going all the way around Samaria. It was very circuitous. It was very much out of the way. And it was the preferred route. Now, why would people choose that route? If it was longer in distance, if it was longer in time? Why would people choose that route? And the reason why was this, because there was five genera- or five centuries at this point of hostility, racial hostility and prejudice between the Jews and Samaritans. 
Uh, I'm not going to go into all the history behind that, but I just want to, to cap the situation, to kind of over, overview it. Here's the situation. There were two people groups. They were related, but they were segregated. Okay? It, if you were to look at their genetic background and their history, going back some seven centuries, they were related. They were, you know, they were cousins. But they had come to see themselves as very distinct people, and there was great hostility between them. For the Jewish part, the, the Samaritans were rejected by the Jews as half-breeds and as religious sellouts. And it, big picture, here's what had happened. The Samaritans were Jews who had intermarried with people groups from other nations, and they hadn't just intermarried with them, they'd intermingled their religions. And so it's what, it's what we would call syncretism. They'd blended a lot of different religions. And so they were still a religious people. They still worshipped Yahweh, but they had many other gods and many other forms of worship that they'd incorporated. And so the Jewish people had said, you're, you're religious sellouts. And there's, there's a certain type of disdain that can happen in the religious community for somebody who has, who has seemingly drifted away. There can be a certain disdain towards them. That had been going on for 500 years. The segregation, it originated in the Assyrian exile of the 700 BC and resulted in five centuries of mutual animosity. And make no mistake, the animosity between Jews and Samaritans, it went both ways. There's a, another passage here, I, I referenced it, it's Luke 9, where Jesus and his disciples are traveling from north to south. And, uh, and they're going through Samaria again. And, and it's a long trip. This is, you know, people are traveling on foot. So this is a multi-day trip. And they try to spend the night in a Samaritan village. And that village rejects them and says, we don't serve your kind around here. Because they knew that they were Jews heading to Jerusalem. At that point, here's, here's the hostility. It's, it's kind of a comical story. Because the, the disciples, they, they come back and they say, Jesus, we're not welcome in that village. They won't serve our kind here. And then James and John, two of the 12, they say, Jesus, in light of that, would you like us to call down fire on this village and destroy it? Like, they're like, you know, we can. And Jesus is like, you, you guys are fishermen. No, I don't want you to do that. And you can't do that anyway. <laughs> but see, that's, that's the kind of hostility that existed. So here's the point. Um, with the prevailing Jewish perspective that these Samaritans were half-breeds and religious sellouts, with centuries of reciprocal hatred, you could see why most Jews preferred to take the longer route. It was actually dangerous to go that route. It was, it was you were exposing yourself to harm, exposing yourself to violence. But John claims that Jesus had to pass through Samaria, that he had to. And here's what I want to suggest to you. That, and biblical commentators say that, you know, there's, there's something, that the language that John's using, if you were to look at the original language when it says that he had to pass there, is that something was compelling him to choose that route. What was that? Here's what I'd suggest in light of the book of John. The gospel of John has this theme that's kind of woven all the way through it. And it's that Jesus continually repeats to people, he says, Things like this. He says, I only do what the Father's doing. I only say what the Father's saying. I don't do anything the Father's not doing. If you see me, you have seen the Father. Jesus is making the invisible God visible is the way we would say it. And, and so when it says that he was compelled, that he had to go that way, 
I would suggest it's because he's not taking his directions from Siri. He's taking his directions from the Father. And I don't know if he knows what's going to happen there. I don't know if, it, if, if he's been given like this kind of download. You, you're, you're going to be looking for this person. Or if he just knows, no, you know what? We don't have an option. Today we take this route. So he goes on the route. He came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, he'd been traveling on foot for maybe a couple days now, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Okay, This little time element's given to us here, and there's no accident in that. The sixth hour, the, the, the Jewish clock, and probably in this whole first century world, it was measured by the amount of hours since sunrise. So this is six hours after sunrise. So if the sun came up at six, it's now high noon. If the sun came up at seven, it's now one in the afternoon. The point is, this is the heat of the day. Okay? And so Jesus is taking a little bit of, uh, of a, a breather and says this, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So this woman has come by herself. She finds Jesus by himself. And it's just the two of them here at the well in the heat of the day. A Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you... A Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. John's explaining this to his audience. Culturally, there's a, a few highly unusual things happening right here. The stuff that we might not pick up on from our cultural distance, you know, we're, we're 2,000 years and, and cultures removed from, from what was going on there. But here's what was going on that was so unusual there. First of all, this woman made the trek to the well outside of town by herself in the heat of the day. Because that was different on a couple of levels. It was not, wasn't smart, it wasn't social, and it wasn't safe. Okay, it, wasn't, it wasn't smart because one, if, if this is a daily chore, and this, this was a daily chore in her village, that the, the town water supply was, was at a well outside of town. So daily, women would go out there and get water for the day, for their household. And, and uh, typically, that was done in the cool of the morning or in the cool of the evening. You wouldn't do it in the heat of the day. That's not smart. And it was also done in a social environment. The women all went together to the well because it was a social environment, and it was also for safety. There was safety in numbers. Out in the wilderness, you were exposed to who knows what kind of things that can happen to women out in the wilderness by themselves. And so they traveled in, in packs. So this is, this is unusual. It tells us that for some reason this woman had been rejected by the sisters in her village. She'd been ostracized by the women in her village. The angst and despair of her world included not just the, the generational prejudice that existed between the people groups in her immediate area that was a part of her world, but there was also this issue of angst and despair that came from being ostracized and, and alienated from the women in her community. Additionally, here's, here's another thing that's highly unusual, and this one the woman actually points out. She says it's that a Jewish man is asking a drink of her. Not only the fact that she's a woman, but that she's a Samaritan woman. Craig Keener, he's a, he's a biblical historian. He, he would teach us that, that Jewish teachers frowned on 
would, would talk, Jewish religious teachers would, would discourage Jewish men from talking to women they were not married to, and especially Samaritan women who were considered unclean since birth. In fact, even, even the water vessel that she was carrying would have been perceived as unclean, and to drink from it would make Jesus ceremonially unclean. So she's shocked by this. Again, in a world that was shaped by animosity and ethnic conflict that had nothing to do with her, this is her, this is her world. I, I thought this week as I was studying this passage again, I thought, I wonder what would have been culturally normative. What would have been a normal way that, that if this is unusual, what would have been the normal way for Jesus to respond? Uh, here's, a, here's a Jewish rabbi encountering a Samaritan woman out in the open country, just the two of them. What would he have done? And I, I suspect that most Jewish rabbis would have given themselves a safe distance from her, would have walked away while she was doing her chore and filling her water, would not have in, engaged with her, would have made it very clear to her that he was a, a, a Jewish rabbi, a, a righteous man, and that she was unclean, which is why she's so surprised by this encounter. I want you to notice this, that Jesus does not treat her with disdain. And in fact, he places, her in, he places himself in her debt. He says, can I have a drink? That's actually a humbling thing to ask someone if, if they can do something for you. He places himself in her debt. He doesn't treat her like a Jew would treat a Samaritan. He doesn't treat her like a man would treat a woman. He treats her like a person. He treats her like an intrinsically valuable image bearer of God. She's used to being treated according to the labels that have been placed on her. She's used to being treated by the limits that people have placed on her. Some of them self-inflicted. Jesus doesn't respond in any of that. He moves towards her just as a, an image bearer of God with intrinsic value. What happens? Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, she'd asked him, she said, how is it that you asked me for a drink? And he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, the conversation that follows from here is a, is a bit like one that Jesus had previously with a, a Jewish religious man in chapter 3 with Nicodemus, where Jesus is speaking in, he's speaking in metaphor. He's trying to, to deal with spiritual things that are abstract by using kind of concrete metaphors that people can maybe wrap their mind around. And she, and she, she takes it literally. And, she, and so this is what happens. Verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? This was the first use of air quotes in Scripture. She says, where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. This well was, at, at this point in human history, this well had been dug for 2,000 years. That this well still exists today. If you go over to Israel, this, this well has been identified. And to this day, it's, it's still 100 feet deep. So when she says, this well is deep, and if you don't have any way to get water, where are you going to get your living water? She's just, she's just being very literal. Like, this is a practical problem. Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water, and he points to the well, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. 
But those who drink the water that I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Listen to what he's offering. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water that I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. You understand why she doesn't want to to go get water every day? Again, she takes him literally much like Nicodemus did in chapter 3. In chapter 3, same book, Jesus had said to Nicodemus, he said, in order to to receive eternal life, in order to see the kingdom of God, you, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, born again? Do I, do I get into my mother's womb as a full-grown? How, how does that work? And Jesus was talking about this new life in the spirit. point is that she took the bait. She's like, I don't know exactly what you're saying. This is a little bit cryptic, but it sounds wonderful. If I don't ever have to come here again and experience this, I want what you have to offer. So where do you think Jesus goes from here? It's like if Jesus was fishing, if we use the, the fishing uh, metaphor that Jesus sometimes uses for, you know, talking to people, he's, he's cast the hook, she's taken the bait, and now it's time to start reeling her in. Now it's time to deliver, because he said, I've got this living water, would you like it? And she's like, give me this water. Where do you think he's going to go? I don't think she expected him to go where he did. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you said is true. And right there, we get a little glimpse into why she may be a social outcast in her community. Again, the, the Samaritans, they were, they blended a lot of religions, but they were still a highly religious people. She would have been considered immoral for her many marriages, for her multiple relationships with men. Perhaps this is the reason why she's been ostracized by the women in her community. Maybe she's perceived as a pariah. Watch out for your man around her. Don't, don't leave your man alone around her. Maybe she was the object of jokes in her town. The world has a way of being pretty cruel. It's, this has always been true, hasn't it? That the, in fact, and in fact, it's a double standard often. That the world has a way of being really cruel to women who've been through multiple relationships while often celebrating the men who do the same thing. I remember growing up in the 80s and there was this, this running joke that just was played out in comedians and everybody. And it had to do with Liz Taylor. Liz Taylor was an actress, a well-known actress who'd been married many times, I think eight times. By the, by the end of her life, she'd been married eight times. And there was just this running joke, just mocking her. And, and you know, as a, as a kid, I didn't really think a whole lot of that. But looking back, I thought, how painful would that be for your failures, your relational failures, to be played out on a national scale by people who don't know you and mocked? Was, was that what she experienced? I suspect something along those lines. Maybe not by the same people, but it's the same tone. And here's the reality. We don't know the circumstances behind her many marriages and relationships. Here's what we do know. We do know she lived in a highly patriarchal culture 
where women were essentially the property of men. When they were born, they were the property of their fathers. When they were married, they became the property of their husbands. There was not equality in the marriage. Uh, even, even if the marriage ended, women could not divorce their husbands. Husbands could divorce their wives. Really, and depending on who you listen to, for many reasons. There, there was no fault divorce even in Israel. But it was only one-sided. So if she's been... We don't know how those marriages ended. We don't know if she's, she's likely been widowed. She's likely been divorced. She's, has she been abused? Like, what's, what's the nature of this cycle? But in a world where it was very hard for a single woman to, to even eke out an existence, her only option was to go back to another man. I mean, the reality is there, there's this cycle in her life. She's not just going to this well for water every day, there's like a lot of empty wells in her life that she's visiting. Nevertheless, Jesus brings us up. And I wonder, why did you bring that up? You, you hooked her, she bit, she asked for what you had to give her, and then you went on this tangent. I want you to suggest that what Jesus says to her, it's not accusational, it's not judgmental. Is not mean-spirited. What Jesus does is this. He touches on the place of the most pain in her life. He puts his finger on it. And you know, when Jesus touches someone, you see this throughout Scripture, when he puts his finger in someone's ears if they can't hear, on their eyes if they can't see, on their tongue if they can't speak, when Jesus touches someone, it's to bring healing. And in this moment, he places his Metaphorically, he places his hand on the place of greatest pain in her life. And the beauty of this is that he has something to offer her. He's treating her. She's having a radically different experience of him than she's had with other men throughout her life. This, this, this man is different. She's experiencing a love, a value, so many things that she's not experienced before. But if she walks away and she tells herself, well, it wouldn't be that way if he really knew who I was. It wouldn't, it wouldn't have, he wouldn't have treated me like that if he really knew my story. Then she wouldn't accept it. By identifying it and continuing to love her as she is, Jesus begins to bring healing to that place of pain. This is, this is an amazing encounter. Does it change everything back home? Has, has he undone the pain of those relationships and the, the cycle she's been in, choices she's made, things that have been done to her? Does it change all of that? No. But hope begins to break through. Value begins to break through. <laughs> verse 16. Oh, wait, verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. <laughs> Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, again, this conversation takes a lot of weird directions, that, and, and maybe John's kind of summarizing it. I don't know. I don't know if this is a redirect. I don't know if she redirects the conversation because this is kind of awkward to talk about her personal life. She talks about a real issue that this exists between the Samaritans and the Jews. What's the right place to worship? And so maybe she's trying to ex- understand Where's this man coming from? Because this is not the typical Jewish rabbinical response. 
This is where Jesus responded to her question. He said, verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. The, 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 the blessing to all the earth was that the, the gospel would come through the Jewish people. But the hour is coming and is now here. You pay attention to that. The hour is coming and it's now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus explains that this eternal life that he's come to bring, this eternal life that he's referred to as living water, that in, in, in many ways it's already here, and it's something that's still coming. We would say it is now, and it's... Not yet. It's breaking into the human experience. It's, break, it's not changed everything yet, but it's changing things in her life. And this eternal life that he's bringing is going to reframe everything. He's, in, in saying this, that, that it's not going to be about Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim or Samaria or Israel. In saying this, he's saying it's going to be about spirit and truth. This is what he's saying. He's saying relationship with God is not going to be limited to people in the right place or in the right circumstances, it's not going to be limited to specific race or gender or even lifestyle. It's going to be open to anyone and everyone who turns to him, who turns to God with a genuine heart and who drink of the living water that he offers freely. It's here in her life, even as he offers her living water. And it's still coming. It's not yet because the world is, is still filled with angst and despair. So I want you to just catch that. It's here, the hour is coming, and it's now here. That's, that's the tension of life in between Jesus' first and second coming. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ or the anointed one. When he comes, he will teach us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, again, this is another unusual thing in the Gospels because typically when people, especially early in Jesus' ministry, try to identify him as the Messiah, he's at best cryptic about it. He doesn't give people direct answers. In fact, sometimes when people say, I think you're the Christ, he says, shh, don't tell anyone. Because he's on his own agenda. He's, on, he's got a mission and he's going to accomplish that mission before it ends with his crucifixion. This is, one of the, this is the first time that he says to somebody, yeah, you got it right. He affirms it, that she got it. This is, this is amazing. And just then his disciples came back, verse 27, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, why, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left the water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And then they went out of the town and they were coming to him. Just see what just happened. However, the fact that Jesus identified her life and, and places of pain and shame and isolation, he identified that and loved her through it, she experienced as life-giving. 
She says, this guy told me everything I ever did. And then she goes and she becomes the first missionary to her people about Jesus. This is the first missionary in scripture. Do you see that? This Samaritan woman who others would have cast aside. Today we're given the same invitation. We're called to make the invisible God visible in the same way that Jesus did. So we're going to talk about a a, a global way to respond today as well. But I, I don't want to miss the opportunity for us to personally respond to this. A very personal encounter between Jesus and an individual. She came with labels, limits. She was a Samaritan. She was a woman. She was damaged goods. All kinds of labels that have been placed on her. As a person that he came to give his life for. You take a moment to, what are the limits that you've experienced in this world that's filled with angst and despair? Experience that has been deeply shaping of your life. It's become a label that you wear. It's become a, uh, an experience that has limited you and defined you. The offer that Jesus made to her is the exact same offer he makes to you. He says, I have living water. I know enough about the circumstances of people in this room and those that are gathered online to know there's so many stories of pain. Today we're going to invite healing of marriages. I believe God wants to heal marriages today. To restore soft hearts where there's hardened, calloused hearts. Do you need living water today? Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Today, Jesus, I just need, I need that offer of living water. I need to be cleansed from the inside. I need your life in me. I want to respond to whatever it is that you're offering. You know, this lady, I don't think she completely understood. In fact, I know she didn't understand everything that he was offering. But she, was, she said yes to the person. Can you say yes to the person of Jesus today? If that's you today, and you just want living water from Jesus. Would you just raise your hand right where you are? I'm just going to pray for you right where you are. If you've got circumstances in your life that are causing angst and despair, if you have labels, limits, places of pain, let Jesus place his finger on that today for the purpose of healing. Jesus, you see every hand that's raised. You see every heart that's open to you right now. Lord, some of us know you and have walked with you for years. Some of us are responding to you as a, as a, in a new way, even as this woman had a first encounter with you. Jesus, would you meet with us? Would you pour out living water? Would you pour out your Holy Spirit in our lives? Cleanse. 
you restore? Would you heal? Would you empower? Jesus, right now, I ask for every manifestation of your Holy Spirit in our lives today. Come, Holy Spirit. You know, Jesus... um, He didn't unpack everything in these conversations, not with Nicodemus, not with this woman. A little bit later in the book of John, though, he says this. This is John chapter 7. On the last day of the feast, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and he shouted to the crowds, anyone who's thirsty, anyone, In the Greek, that means anyone. Anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scripture declares rivers of living water will flow from their heart. And then John puts in parentheses, he says, when he said living water, he was speaking of the Holy Spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. The Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been resurrected. Today, the Holy Spirit is here in our midst. After we close today, we're just going to invite a time of prayer. I, I believe that some of you may need prayer. We, we may have some words for prayer that our prayer team has, has sensed for specifically this morning. If there are, we'll put them on the screen, invite you to respond to those. But if you would like someone to, to join you in prayer and just allow some of our ministry team to pray with you, we're going to invite you at the end to just stick around and come up here and, and receive prayer. But what I don't, well, I want to just kind of make a, a, a pivot right now because I don't feel like we can talk about, about hope in a world of angst and despair without addressing the very issues of angst and despair in our world when we have the opportunity to do so. So if you've been tracking with us, you know, we've, we've got a couple of global partnerships that we've been especially trying to focus on lately, a couple weeks ago in Myanmar, and, and more recently, we're, we've got partners in, in Ukraine. And, and so we have a, a partnership with a, a couple. They were, they were from the vineyard in, in Salem, Oregon, and they ended up moving to Ukraine, moving their family to Ukraine, and beginning a ministry called Wide Awake. And what Wide Awake does is they, they reach out to severely handicapped children and if they've been orphaned, they bring them into their, into their family. They, they actually take guardianship of them and give them a family. And if they're severely handicapped, but they have family who are providing for them, they network with those families to raise the level of care for severely disabled individuals. And, and so a few years ago, we took up an offering to help them buy a, a home and property where they could, could actually have a, a base and a home to, to bring these, these, these typically boys into and now with everything going on in Ukraine, they, we, we've watched as they've been sending out video updates and they had to make a choice. It was, and for a while they stayed and they, and they felt like they could, could stay where they were. And at some point they realized we had to move. And so at this point, they've relocated as many of the boys as they can that they can legally move them. They've moved them to Germany along with their care team and the, and the families invi- involved. There's still some that are left there that they don't have guardianship of that they're having to go back for. So we're going to play a little excerpt of a video 
This is a, an update that Kim sent out. So the, the couple's named Jed and Kim. This is Kim's most recent update. It was, it's about a week old. Uh, I'm just going to play that. And it's just to put a face, a story to the global crisis of angst and despair that's playing out in Ukraine. I just, I don't know how to communicate with you um, because talking about our situation here feels so irrelevant compared to the absolutely incredible suffering that's happening in Ukraine. And so I know that you care specifically about us and our boys and our team. And I'm so incredibly grateful for this committed, loving community that we've built, that God has built over the last 10 years or so. So I know you want to hear from us, but I just don't know what to say um, because we are safe. We are sick that we are not in Ukraine helping there. Um, I don't understand how this can be happening and how we are safe and so many others are not and what's going to happen tomorrow. And we want to know what's happening in Ukraine, but we also need to be present here. And um, we're very busy here. Like we have a lot of people that we're responsible for that can't take care of themselves. And we're trying to figure out how we live here and trying to get registered. And so that as refugees, and what do we do with all these kids we have here? And the boys need to go to the doctor. And, you know, so what we have here is busy. But in those in-between moments, you just want to check the news. You just want to know what's happening in Ukraine, what's happening to our home. You know, it's just crazy to think just a couple weeks ago, three weeks ago, all our kids, the kids were going to school, teens were going to youth group, we were going to church, out and about in the town, and now our cities are being destroyed by Russian bombs. It's, and we're refugees in Germany. Like, I don't understand how the world can change, how your world can change so quickly, and there's, yeah, a lot of emotion and processing that goes along with that, and I don't haven't figured out how to get anything straight in my head, let alone communicate it to you. In the meantime, Jed um, has been working hard with our partners here in Humedica. It's a relief organization here in town to gather tons of humanitarian aid. Next week, he plans to take it all back to Ukraine. And while he's there, he's going to really fight to try to get permission to bring two of our boys from Romania here to us in Germany. We had planned to take guardianship of them when Grant got here. But Grant got here when the whole world was falling apart. And so... You know, we really want our boys safe with us. We want all our boys safe with us. But the two that we had planned to take guardianship of, we really want to try to bring them here. We don't know how long we'll be here, and we want them safe here with us. And um, nowhere in Ukraine is safe. That's the reality of it right now. People have been emailing us a ton asking how to help. The main way to help is to pray and to donate. 100% of your donations to Wide Awake International go towards direct help in Ukraine. Our team is distributing humanitarian aid, caring for people with disabilities in our city, um, making sure Romania has food and diapers, and anything you donate will go towards 
helping keep the people that we love safe um, and hopefully a lot more as time goes on. Um, thank you for praying for us and for loving us. Thank you for enduring my late night blubbering. I just want you to know that we appreciate you and what's happening here. We're safe. We're fine. And we'll talk to you later. Bye. You know, Jesus, as I shared the end of that passage, Jesus deliberately moved towards a place of uh, angst and despair in the world to bring healing to it. And uh, he's commissioned us to do the same. There's a day coming when all is going to be made right. That's what we, that's what we wait for and hope. And that day arrives every time we move towards someone that's in pain, someone that's in angst and despair. We deliberately move out the way that Jesus did. And so I'm going to ask you to do two things. Kim said there, there's two things, the biggest things you can do if you're, if you're not here and can help on the ground, pray and give. And so that's how we're going to do today. We're going to, we're going to pray and we're going to give you an opportunity to give. Um, I know we just did this a few weeks ago for, for Myanmar as well. There's civil war happening in Myanmar and we took up an offering for, the, for everyone there. Um, and there's another global crisis. So there's not a pressure to be involved, but anything you give, 100% of what you give, goes directly to providing relief through Wide Awake to their children, to the families that they're serving, to the relief work back in their, in their town. In fact, so, so that was recorded a week ago. This morning, Jed sent out uh, uh, an update just this morning. This, came, this is just a few hours old. He said, our most vulnerable and their support have made it out of Ukraine. They're staying in Germany with a partner church. 36 in all have made it to safety and are receiving all the support and care that we and others can give them. Out of a horrible situation, we could not have ended up in better circumstances. Our friends with disabilities are surrounded by the people that they know and love. Our team and parents have a calm environment where they, where they can meet the physical needs and have the space to process all that they've lost and how to pick up the pieces of their lives. Praise God for his provision. The church is really being the body of Christ. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Meanwhile, back in Ukraine, the homestead is full of people with and without disabilities who cannot leave or are choosing to stay and to help in country. We're housing families long-term as well as providing respite for people who are escaping heavier fighting areas and traveling further west. Our team is coordinating humanitarian aid in partnership with our city and village councils. We have lists of the most needy neighbors in a 50-kilometer radius, and we are delivering food and medical supplies, as well as doing needs assessment to address the ongoing humanitarian humanitarian crisis. We also have a 4 by 4 bus sneaking in and around the heavy fighting to get out, help get families of children who have disabilities to safety. Shh. Jed says, while I'm in Germany, I, I'm able to help coordinate more humanitarian aid with our international partners, as well as to help them gain access to set up EMT triage clinics in Western Ukraine. Unfortunately, this is merely the beginning of a long road. He said, we don't, this is, everything's changed. We don't know how long this is going to last and we don't know what's going to be left when everything, when the dust settles, how are we going to rebuild? What's going to need to happen? Thank you for walking with us and praying for us and supporting these precious people and this vital work. Church, I just want to give you an opportunity. In a world of angst and despair, we can, we can wring our hands and we can say, well, it's just tragic and there's nothing we can do or we can make a difference for that one. Jesus didn't fix five generations of Samaritan hatred and Jewish 
hostility. He did make a difference for that one, for that person, for her town. We can make a difference for these kids. And so whether you want to give a dollar or a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars, whatever, whatever you want to give, we're going to put up a link here. We've set this up. This is, it's going to be funded, uh, channeled through us, but a hundred percent of this, there's no administrative cost. hundred percent of this goes directly to Wide Awake and the relief work they're doing with those children, with the families and in their city. And so if you want to be a part of that, I just want to invite you to do that. If you're not able to be a part of that financially, you're able to pray. And, and that's what Kim said. The biggest thing you can do is pray for us. We feel the difference. And so there's the, the site, the, the QR codes there. If you point your camera towards it, it'll pull up. It'll go directly to the page, or you can type in the page. It's vineyardvoices.org slash Ukraine. One thing you'll find on that vineyardvoices.org page is a link to their YouTube channel where you can subscribe and you can keep getting the updates and find out what's happening, what the needs are, how to pray. I want to invite you to do that. Um, we don't have to, to just embrace a world of angst and despair. We can move towards it the way Jesus did. Amen? All right. I'm going to close in prayer, and then I want to invite uh, our ministry team to be uh, available up front. And if you would like prayer at, at any level this morning, if you came in need of prayer, um, we'd love to join you in that. So Lord Jesus, we do lift Jed and Kim and all of the team that makes up Wide Awake, all of the families, all of the children who make up Wide Awake, and the specific thing that they are facing in a world of angst and despair, the, the Christ that they're facing in Ukraine. Thank you for the testimony of your church being the church, of a, the church in Germany that just opened their doors and said, you can stay here as long as you want. Thank you for your body being your body. And Lord, would you help us to do what we can do from here, to remember when we hear the news stories about Ukraine, to, to take a moment to pray for Wide Awake, to pray for Jed and Kim, to pray for their team. Would you remind us to turn our angst and despair into petitions to you, into prayer? And God, we want to see the fullness of this. We want to see the hour that has come and is coming. We long for the day when you make all things new. And while we wait for that, would you help us to move towards the people, the stories, the situations where there is angst and pain with your love, with your welcome, with your ways. We ask this in your name for, for your glory, for our joy, and for the sake of our world. Amen. All right. Church, Go make the invisible God visible. Remember, there's if gathering table out in, in the lobby as well as a garden table. And there's also a meeting for harvest in the chapel. Go make the invisible God visible. Thanks for listening. To respond or receive prayer after the live stream closes, please email prayer at vineyardboise.org. And if possible, include your phone number. We'd love to get in touch with you. Thanks.